0: Welcome to Breaking the Chain, where we deep dive into the lives and experiences of entrepreneurs looking to shake up, change, and innovate their industries. In this podcast, we explore the challenges, successes, and everyday ups and downs of individuals fighting in the trenches for their dreams to become a reality. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chapman. Today, I'm joined by John Vickers. Who is making space and deep sea exploration more accessible by developing a state of the art commercial astronaut training facility? Okay, welcome to episode six of Breaking the Chain. This has been a bit of a break for us. We've not been exactly back for a few months. I think with everything happening in the world today and with work that's taken off at Impel, it's taken us a bit of time to get back on track. Today, I'm really excited to welcome our next guest, which is John Vickers, who is CEO of Blue Abyss. Welcome, John. Thank you, Nathan. Glad to be here. We're extremely excited to have you on board today. I mean, ever since uh, we got connected through our mutual contact, through Jess, I was really keen to obviously explore with a lot of the people that are uh, listening on the show here more about what you're trying to achieve in your business. To give you a brief introduction to our listeners, you know, Blue Abyss is focusing on being kind of the next generation of not just environmental research, but building commercial diving capabilities and looking at evaluation for subsea and space technology services and innovation as a whole. John obviously is gonna give us a bit of a, a better introduction to what he's trying to achieve. And it's been a project that's been ongoing for the last goodness what, six and a half years, John. So it's it's been a long time that you've been focused in developing this concept. <laughs> it is. It is Nathan. For those of our listeners that haven't heard of your services before or heard of Blue Abyss,
1: I guess who are you and and yeah, what do you what do you do? Thanks, Nathan. So, John Vickers, as you very kindly said, I started Blue Abyss, Nathan, it is six and a half, maybe even a little bit more than that, six and a half years ago, when I'd been working in the city, family and I had been away on holiday, I'd accepted another role with another company, and then for one reason or another, that that fell through. And I came back, and I wasn't too bothered, I, I went for a couple of interviews, I actually got offered jobs for one reason or another, it seemed to be that those weren't meant to be. So the company, one of the companies I went and interviewed with, um, they didn't get their development funding. And, and I happen to be the chairman of a voluntary organisation that helps military, ex-military people and those leaving the services learn to network. And i introduced what we're doing for those people who are leaving the services by saying, now is a time as you leave the, the transition away from the military to look at what you'd really like to do instead of what you know you think you have to do. And I thought, I wonder if fate's giving me a bit of a nudge in that direction. And so six and a half years ago, I I sat down with my wife and I said, look, I've had an idea. I've started business before, run companies. And she said, right, what is it? And I said, well, I'd like to build a pool. (laughs) And she said, I think you said the word pool. I said, well, I did, but a very big one. So Blue Abyss is about building a series of the world's largest and deepest pools to work with offshore energy, robotics, subsea technology, do extreme environment R&D with humans, and become the world's first commercial space training centers. Fantastic.
0: This is, I mean, it's such an interesting concept because there's obviously so many different applications that you're thinking of utilizing this sort of space for. And, and and we've talked about it from more of a space component in the past, but I guess you're thinking this could be used for a range of different services right in different
1: industries yeah one of the things that struck quite early on actually it was a conversation with somebody up in in Northumbria who said oh the, you know it feels like a great idea potentially but um they were a bit struck by the fact that oh if you're just going to focus on human spaceflight in the UK maybe the UK isn't quite ready for that yet and I said actually well I, I think we've already thought of that because the business is focused on marine to space not just space so it often depends on who you're talking to you tend to you know focus on that element for for that audience why would a subsea technician or an rov operator really be interested in human spaceflight? apart from okay that's quite interesting back to my day job for me it's fantastic to be able to talk about that breadth to people you know here is a single facility it's not that imaginative it's a pool (laughs) albeit potentially a very large pool and a series of them but it's what you can do in them that really, I'm fortunate because after a while, I think maybe for a sort of year or so, I'm thinking, are people really going to get it? It's a pool. You know, how will we develop that concept? But I think when we say marine to space, people are a bit okay. What's the synergy? And water is the common link. Water is the common medium. Believe it or not. I mean, way back in. The late 60s, early 70s, when humans started doing the first spacewalks, the very first spacewalk, a Russian called Alexei Leonov. I mean, he only spent 12 minutes outside of his capsule, the Soyuz capsule, but he was literally floundering around. I mean, you know, there was that first initial human actual walking in space, as it were, diving into space. Not planned in terms of they knew they were going to do it, but the whole consequence of when he got outside, the pressure was much less than they anticipated. Of course, it was a vacuum, but the suit overexpanded to compensate. And so he, he wasn't really in control of what he was doing. He lost a, an, an awful lot of weight, believe it or not, in those 12 minutes. Temperature going through the roof, heart rate at something like 180 beats a minute. I mean, if you weren't probably a, an X-level astronaut, you would be in a, wow, this is not going at all well. I mean, to the extent that when he tried to get back into the capsule, he couldn't. Eventually had to crack a seal on a glove, I believe, or something like that, in order to squeeze back in. And even then, it didn't look like he was going to make it back inside the capsule. But, and I'm I'm not going to repeat the words, he tells the story along the lines of, you know, I'm I'm damned if I'm going to die out here. And if I squeeze my way in and the suit leaks, I'm just going to have to shut the door quickly, the hatch. And you just think, sheesh, that's probably not, not the way it was anticipated to go. But ever since then, well, since then, there was an American a chap called Colonel Ed White carried out the first American space war, much more controlled, but still that sense of you can watch those early films both alexei's and and colonel ed white's and a sense of swimming you get the sense that you know they're floating around not necessarily trying to be an ultra control ed white had a little air pistol he was using in order to sort of orientate himself he enjoyed it 30 minutes he, he had to be ordered to come back into his capsule but actually it was buzz aldrin and the last astronaut on the moon gene cernan eugene gene cernan who together pioneered the use of pools to help astronauts prepare more thoroughly and in a much more disciplined fashion so the whole human spaceflight bit in Nepal has got a relatively long just after you know the first humans to walk on the moon actually notion of being a part of their training program and i suspect that we've been using outdoor venues quarries dry docks the ocean to prepare for our exploration underwater here we're trying to bring that into the 21st century creating a brand new facility which caters to that breadth of market so it's a large pool in terms of it's 50 metres long, 40 metres wide with a maximum depth. So it's multiple levels down to 50 metres. But what really, I mean, that's relatively deep. You know, it's not deep in yeah. terms of the world's oceans, but, but it's a deep pool. <laughs> Don't go in without your armbands. But it's the fact that that volume, 43,000 cubic metres, an Olympic pool is 3,500 cubic metres. Yeah. NASA's current pool is 24,000 cubic metres. So you're dealing with something that's a huge body of water, but it's what we can do with that water We can change the lighting, both above and and within the water. We can add currents at different depths and different directions and at different strengths. We can put dyes in the water to simulate loss of visibility. We can change, albeit not instantaneously, from a chlorinated to a saline solution, a saline environment. So there's a myriad of things that I think initial Buzz Aldrin and and Gene Cernan probably never envisaged, never thought about. And in terms of offshore energy, we're developing a 21st century fit-for-purpose environment. But actually, the same environment can be used across those different sectors. I mean, there's a, there's a gulf, right, between the oceans and space. But here you can use the same facility to cater for both. And
0: it's interesting because I always think of, you know, you think of the pool scene in NASA. I always think of Armageddon. You know, that's like my movie. You know, and they're preparing and getting ready to do that, you know, the being approved, you know, go and destroy the comet. And, but you, you think of these facilities as obviously being very much uh, government run. You know and, and I think there's been a very big change in the in the space industry over the last certainly over the last few years i mean we 're seeing it hugely with companies like SpaceX and even now Amazon looking at going into this commercial space. but you know, I suppose I never even thought of the potential of using utilizing this as a commercial facility, and I think you're right the idea you're behind is building a state of the art facility to help with premier research i mean ideally within space and you know testing within those extreme environments but also being able to utilize those to different environments. But I guess, so does something like this not exist as a kind of commercial or, or privatized type business? And, and what's the benefits, I suppose, of, of you being able
1: to offer that kind of service? So that's a really interesting observation. I mean, there are commercial pools and there are test facilities out there. I think what we've sought to do on the space side of things, actually, it was always from a marine to space, you know, for me, it was ubiquitous. It was the same thing. If you're going to build a facility... Maybe this is an expansive nature for me, uh, being Texan for a minute, perhaps. If you're going to build something, build it big, right? Build it recognisable. Make it so big, potentially, that you could cater for those different audiences at the same time. If you're building something today, then you can overcome certain limitations that you might have had historically in terms of ambition or the technology. Uh, NASA's pool, for instance, has always had technology because concrete naturally, Believe it or not, leaks because as it cures, there are micro fissures that occur. But NASA worked with an America, a Canadian company to develop a chemical that, as, it, as the pool cured, as the, as the physical concrete walls cured, would self seal. So here you have something that is relatively speaking lowish maintenance. You know, if you get the infrastructure right to support that pool, the astronaut community want a very clean, um, almost you can't see you're in water environment. Offshore energy people don't necessarily require that. You know, they, they're used to working in deep, dark oceans, rough seas, um, low visibility. So how do you cater for all that potentially disparate audiences? Well, you build a facility that takes modern technology, a degree of theatre, high definition cameras, high definition lighting, LED lighting. And stuff, And you say, what do we actually want to replicate? If it's offshore energy constraints for the subsea technology, maritime defence, etc., then you create a series of conditions that suit them. But the same facility, if you've put a dye in the water, I mean, we're filtering something like an Olympic pool's worth of water just over about every hour. Yeah. So that's 3,500 cubic meters. So don't go near the drains, for goodness sake, <laughs> as you disappear <laughs> into the pipework. But that throughput of water, that allows us to create something that, that for instance, most pools never created with some pools have wave machines but inducing a current in a pool for different strengths different directions i mean yeah okay that they'll blast water in a water jet for a fun pool yeah but okay look everybody get ready if you're a non-swimmer move to that particular move out of that particular area of the pool everybody else get ready here we can do that discreetly at different depths and different directions and different strengths not because we want to challenge people necessarily with a current but a lot of subsea technology requires it. Most of the ocean is not driven, you know, most of the technology we put in the oceans is not worried about the wave action. That's a few metres. But as you descend into the depths, then you have to go through thermoclines, you have to go through ocean currents. If you're driving an ROV that's going down thousands of metres, you've got no end of cabling coming out behind. That will get dragged around by currents. How do you simulate that all in a pool in order that when those firms and, and technology companies go and deploy in the ocean... They've absolutely made sure that they're fit for purpose, that they've addressed as many of the challenges that they think they're going to face as possible. You're making it safer. You're making it more cost-effective. You're utilising the time on site to do the job, not do some research and development work, which you should have done somewhere else. And the same pool, I think the size and scale of the pool, Nathan, also allows for that ambition to cater for that those disparate audiences. But unusually, perhaps you know, unconsciously, By having such a big facility, you can cater those audiences potentially at the same time. Here we have a marine industry, you know, oil and gas, think of it, offshore renewables is coming increasingly. Since the 80s, we've had remotely operated vehicles. If you watch a discovery program about the bottom of the ocean, you'll see the little ubiquitous box-like vehicle that's being piloted from a ship on the surface, doing film work, collecting samples. Those got scaled up and, and started working in oil and gas fields at thousands of meters. We obviously have the disaster with Deep Horizon. And, and thousands of metres down, you've got a robot. There's no body is going to go down there. You've got a robot seeking to cut off a, a, a leaking oil well. And I'm one of those proponents that says, well, actually, that technology, those ROV, and, and to a lesser degree, perhaps, autonomous vehicles, more like torpedo-looking devices that, that go in the ocean. Boating, boat boatface is a great example of, a, of an AUV. Put it in the water, leave it for two or three weeks, two or three months, it either goes up and down vertically in the water column or underneath the ice cap and does sampling. But they tend to be, you know, drop it, it does a task. When you collect it again, you potentially collect all the data. Or if it periodically has come to the surface, it will beam the data to satellite. But an ROV is a human controlling this vehicle to take samples, do simple tasks. If you put that vehicle now in a pool whether there is an astronaut training, to me... That suggests, well, look, they might have been at opposite ends of ones in the ocean, ones in space in terms of work. But why wouldn't you have an ROV that was being developed for space? Why not have an astronaut control that ROV with a thin wire or wirelessly technology or from inside a spaceship? I just see so many synergies that this pool is designed to. Help take us forward, and the whole point about is it a commercial facility? Yes, because the government facilities and the private companies facilities that exist tend to be very focused. so the government pools that exist so NASA has a pool, the Russian space agency, the Chinese, the European space Agency varying in size, focused on gut go- supporting predominantly government astronaut and space programs. The private companies who have offshore energy style pools tend to be well, I've got a small robot, does it float? does it sink when I want to? It's got some maneuverability because the pool's not big. Hmm. Here we are putting them all together and adding multiple levels and scale.
0: Well, I find that so fascinating that you can share so much information potentially in a pool like this, right? You've got different industries working on different technology that are bumping into each other in the same pool. You know, you you almost hope to imagine like someone's like. Oh, that's really interesting. Can we utilize some of that technology for our product? So even not even just from a scale of having this ability for multiple companies, and we even talked about it. You know, even if it's the ability for smaller companies that don't have access to those resources or to those few and separate facilities to have access to this one. But I also think for the ability for you to innovate as a business as well, you might find that there's lim- you know limitless opportunity for you to network and find individuals that may also contribute to the innovation or progress of your own product. So it kind of drives that that innovation forward, whether it's space, marine, drilling, whatever it might be, you might find all of them at somehow sharing information and technology.
1: That's a great insight. Nathan, absolutely right. I should get you to do the, the, the spoken marketing brochures because that's exactly the, the premise. <laughs> you know, people talk about collaborative opportunities. I have certainly experienced in my business career that typically those have been you know, amongst colleagues or very similar industries. At first, I suspect if we walked out in the street and did a you know quick survey, a random poll of people and said, what's the synergy between space and the oceans? People would be, uh, um, I don't know, uh, give me a guess, give me a clue. I mean, you, you then say, look at a commercial diver and look at an astronaut, you might see some, oh, okay, that looks similar-ish. I've made the point about robots. I think there's an awful lot of more synergy to come, but you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. By creating a modern large facility with those two stated if they're extremes of each other the oceans and space we are looking to foster a collaborative supportive environment forgive the pun from the get-go where not only people from similar backgrounds, so offshore energy you know you've got oil you've got gas you've got renewables they can now mix more free, freely than perhaps they would have done historically there seems to be quite a gulf between i work in the oil and gas industry and i work in the renewables sector but here you can have space companies coming in, high tech providers, but, you know, tools that you take for granted. Drills, for instance, I've seen examples of space drills that, you know, high speed, low torque. Why? Because if you're holding a drill in space and you're not really wedged in against something as the drill's turning, so will you be. I mean, I just I never entertain that thought. Yep. So I think that you, you have an environment now that we're actively looking to encourage clients from disparate backgrounds smaller clients perhaps at times will look to say look i wouldn't want to afford i don't need the whole pool but suddenly find that they've got a, a time and a space and then there's a oh hi who are you where are you from oh, you're working on what engineering challenge to do with space hey do, could you lend me some of that technology i think there's an opportunity here and vice versa battery technology materials being used the the challenges that are needed to be overcome aquaculture deep sea mining there's just Asteroid mining. You know, there are so many parallels and there's so many um, synergies. Nathan. I think we're beginning to uncover the more we speak about it back to the premise. Six years ago, it's just a pool. How can I get people excited? But the more we talk about the more validity there appears to be and the more other people are graciously taking up the mantle and saying, oh, I see a synergy and that, that, yeah, that just appears to me to be completely natural and makes sense. That's fantastic. I don't have to tell them they get it. Well, right, John, well,
0: look, I'd love to actually, I mean, because this concept and idea has come from your journey as a person individually. I mean, we've talked about your background being in the military and your passion for diving. And I think it would be really cool to explain how you even got to this stage where you're like, I want to build a pool, you know, because what's really neat is I think a lot of your earlier experiences and what you went through and even some of the passions that you have, like individual passions, led you to kind of approaching this project, which you certainly have a big passion for. So where did this all start, this sense of like exploration and and I guess your uh, interest in this type
1: of area as a whole? So Nathan, I was born in Liberia in West Africa. Why is that relevant? Because from a very young age, I remember my second eldest, sister took me for swimming lessons. And I distinctly remember going to this pool half of which seemed to be covered by a rattan sort of roof. There were leaves in the pool. And my sister kept, you know, right, get in the water, you know, swim with armbands. And on this particular occasion, she said, right, give me one armband. And I was, mm, okay, I'm not so sure about this. You know, I don't think 18-month, two-year-olds necessarily are keen on, 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 you know, right, let me divest myself of the safety equipment. And then the next thing I know, she'd got me in the side, out, and she said, right, take off the other armband. And then I said, well, I'm going to tell my mum. And she threw me in the pool, and she, as she threw me in the pool, I categorically, as sure as I'm, I'm sat here, and Nathan, remember her saying, you'll have to get out the pool to tell her. So it was a sink or swim event, right? I feel like that could be quite – it sounds like it's going to take you in the right direction, but that would be
0: quite traumatizing. You might never want to go near a pool again.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe it's taken me this long to think about it because of that. I might have to have words with my sister. I do recall also being in beaches in Saudi Arabia and then we lived for a number of years in Bahrain in the Middle East from a young age. So we arrived in Bahrain when I was about four, four and a bit years old. And I remember we lived in a, they called it a Wali, was a bit of a township. So it was where expats and, and foreigners used to congregate and, and get based first before, whilst your, in my case, my father, got established in the job he had accepted in Bahrain. And, and I used to go off wandering from an early age. Fortunately, for my time in Saudi Arabia, I could speak fluent Arabic. So if my mother couldn't find me, she would phone up the neighbours and ask her if there were any workmen. Because I would typically have turned up, found some workmen, converse with them in Arabic, and then invite myself to lunch. So I'd be there happily sitting, eating with my hands, you know, chatting away. And then my mum and the car would turn up and say, you know, open the door, get in, for goodness sake. And um, maybe she had to offer the people money to like, you know, I'm sorry that my son's eating your food, but then, and then I remember, you know, a number of times at four or five years old, wandering off. And, and in, in Wali, there was a distinct chain link fence around this. So it was a fairly, I mean, it was a village, but maybe a few thousand houses. Yeah. And then at the edge of this township compound, whatever you call it, there was this fence. And I remember tunneling underneath it on numerous occasions. I took another child with me and we would go off wandering for hours and on one particular occasion, I came back, and there was a—I couldn't get back to the fence, and I was starting to panic a bit because there was a camel herd in the way. And again, one of those clear memories from childhood, a Land Rover appeared in amongst these camels. The door opened, and this male voice said, "John, get in." And you know, I think eventually people had started to panic. Or, Where's the kid gone this time? And I'd wandered off. You know, Bahrain's not very big nation, but out into the Ulu for a, for a fair couple of hours. So that that level of of exploration of curiosity stuck with me scroll forward and I joined the army at at 16 and very fortuitously for me my first posting out into Gibraltar and I army is keen on an adventure training the military is keen on adventure training and I got the option to do scuba diving I hated it at first I I, my nose kept blocking up a sense of panic you know everything all the compounding thing apart from being able to swim from a long time Everything else just didn't really suit. But the day that it went right, the day I went underwater and I wasn't panicking, the mast wasn't leaking, I, my nose wasn't blocked, it all cleared my ears, etc. I just remember kneeling, it was only about five or six metres, so not very deep, by a dockside in Gibraltar. It went quiet. I could hear my breath. There's the rustle of, of pebbles on sand as the tides moving in or waves are coming up. And it just was otherworldly. And for that moment, at that place, at that time, I was the only person that had ever been there.
0: It's so calming. You know, I've been, I mean, I haven't been as nearly as much as you have. I actually did a week diving course in Santorini and I, I found it the most incredible experience. And I've done a couple of other dives since, not to super deep levels or anything in particular. I think I need to get my advanced diving course for that. But I completely agree with you. I think you're in this sense where I, I think it's one of the only experiences where you feel like you're flying almost, you know, and you're covered, cutting through across different, yeah. you know, corals or reefs or, or shipwrecks or whatever it might be that you're exploring. And it is just absolutely peaceful like almost where you can feel absolute silence almost so i yeah i completely appreciate where you're coming from
1: and there's that sense absolutely and there's that sense of oneness there's you i, I mean we always in the military especially expounds on this principle that you should always dive with somebody right that doesn't necessarily uh, always have to be the case but the, the military follows the the british Shabakra club's format and you should always dive with a partner but notwithstanding you sort of uh, again the more you dive the more you have an awareness of other things going on around you as you stop panicking about bloody hell you know this is me underwater and more of a right just relax this is going on you know where the other person is but you're absolutely the ability to feel like you're on your own is just immense it's peaceful and whilst it's an external environment the internal sense of peace was profound and it really I, what, all I could keep thinking about were. Um, as I was growing up, I was very fortunate to listen to a series by Jacques Cousteau, his world exploration series of diving and, and diving in different places. I mean, he's got such an iconic voice and voiceover. And then in nineteen seventy-five, having only been back in the UK for about a year with my mother, I watched the Apollo Soyuz link up in space. Now I had no idea about the politics between the Americans and the Russians aged eight and a half. But it was such an iconic event. And and so As I got into the army, the diving reinvigorated that sort of Cousteau sense of exploration. And as I got older, my fascination with space, that one first event of watching Apollo rockets taking off, of humans meeting in space. And it all seemed quite dive like, you know, that weightless gives you that perception of of being underwater or underwater gives you that perception of being in space. There is that three dimensional nature to it. And so, scroll forward to, to me thinking, you know, I'm on this choice. What do I do? Go I try and pursue another career? Or, and I thought, I just want to follow that passion. Human curiosity is, is one of those defining things. Curiosity about humanity is one of those defining characteristics that we, from a young age, display curiosity, and it's either often beaten out of us or we're chastised out of it. No, don't do that. You mustn't do, go there. Tommy, get down from the tree. Sarah put that down you know whereas within reason obviously <laughs> put the gas lighter down fine but we we somehow lose that ability as as we transition and we get older you know we don't try new things we're afraid to go and try new food for goodness sake go to new holiday destinations we're afraid to go where hundreds of other people have walked uh, on a cliff edge pass because it might break but everyday life is is filled with that opportunity for things to go wrong and so we lose perhaps that edge of what it feels like to be very visceral, curiosity, exploration, to be alive. And Blue Abyss, in a perverse way, feels like for me that I'm, I'm reliving that opportunity. And I'm, I would love to feel that I'm enabling and allowing other people to come and rediscover that for themselves or if they've never lost it. To, to push those boundaries further.
0: Yeah, and you kind of, I mean, I'm sure people use this all the time, but you fuse, I view the sea and space as these different, these frontiers, these these huge, vasts of space that we still have very limited knowledge about, right? The depths that we can go to in our own oceans and, and to the far reach of the galaxy, you know, we're, we're scratching the surface on what's achievable compared to exploration previously of our planet itself. You know, a lot of those frontiers or a lot of those challenges in, in the environment on the surface, you know, well, I'm sure there's still still places to explore within the Amazon and and things of that nature. You you have these humongous areas where we have in many aspects such a lack of knowledge that hopefully the technology and, and companies that come to Blue Abyss or partner with Blue Abyss in the future will have the ability to really push push our the the boundaries of what we know of the world that we actually live in and, and the world that surrounds us, I guess.
1: Yeah, Nathan, absolutely. I mean, they talk about sort of, we, we know about 5% of our oceans. I mean, obviously people fish in it and people live in and around those coastal communities and then there's there's operations and organizations like necton foundation who've been doing expeditions down to the sort of twilight zone i you know five six hundred seven hundred meters down into our oceans uh, and sort of starting to really catalog what's down there i when the sunlight stops you know there, there is a rich seam of life before you get into I've, presume we'd all call really deep ocean you know a thousand plus meters where the availability of life decreases sharply given the fact that there's far less resources there you have to go to places like deep thermal vents or um the actual abys- abyssal plains where life will start to congregate so if there's a carcass drops onto the abyssal plain at three or four thousand meters life somehow finds a way to get to that carcass there's a food source but we know at tiny 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 bit of all of our planet as you said the land yeah the air we're we're probably pretty comfortable with and we've been most places repeatedly but the earth's oceans no and what I find slightly distressing about that is that we we seem to have had this exploitative attitude towards our oceans you know those back to those Jacques Cousteau programs they really educated me but we were talking about you know one percent of the ocean's depth but it was colorful it was light it tended to be warm water and um, cold water is a bit of a sort of a different animal for me I've, I've never had that passion we know a guy kelvin murray who's a polar explorer and andy Torbert, and, and no end of people who seem to love diving in cold water i'd have to wrap up warm before i get into the cold water but but the richness of life under our arctic oceans is phenomenal the food sources the variety of life And and yet we've treated our oceans, by and large, apart from those relatively shallow amounts, with disdain. Yeah. You know, we we throw rubbish away. We don't care what happens to it. If we can't see it, it mustn't be affecting us. We dredge the ocean depths for food or for resources without really contemplating. And I think we owe it to ourselves now to start contemplating. What's the effect of me doing that? We may need the resources. We may need the energy sources. I absolutely understand that. But I think we just need to do the exploitation more awarely. What's the impact of us doing this? How do I mitigate that impact so that it doesn't affect other people, other life forms, the planet, our home? And then when it comes to space, I mean, space is an <laughs> orders of magnitude different, right? We we know our own backyard just. We Twelve, perhaps three of men have walked on the surface of the moon. We, in the next three, four, five years, 2024 artemis program is hoping to return humans and the first woman to the moon phenomenal but yet still we, i mean what a milestone and achievement that will be we've sent a probe to mercury we've had probes reach pluto and chiron voyager 1 and voyager 2 are now in interstellar space but still we've we've you know we know a fraction of a fraction and so that the whole era of exploration here on Earth, there's a world still to discover under our oceans. And in space, we haven't even scratched the surface, Nathan. it's it's Humanity's got all that to come. It's going to be fascinating.
0: So when we look, I mean, coming back to you, and, and we were talking about with the military and diving and this passion and levers link, what put you in this direction of saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to take all of this and all of this passion and interest. And because I think it's always interesting, you know, especially because it's such a big undertaking, this project. But there had to be a point for you where you went, you know what? I really want to pursue something like this. Was it a, a light bulb moment? Did you wake up in the middle of the night and say, we need this pool? Or was it, it was it something over time that you kind of had interest in?
1: No, I can genuinely say, Nathan, I, I fulfilled uh, desires and obligation. you know, becoming a diver. I said, once I started it, I, I fell in love with it. The exploration bit, not so much. I, I had been abroad. I love. if I go abroad, I try not, to, I may stay in a nice hotel, right? But I try and go and eat locally. I go and meet the, Locals. I want to to explore the environment, but I've never really gone into that whole expedition side of of you know cutting myself off. So I, I can't argue that that was a, an instigator. I gave a talk once at a school. I explained about the fact that I, I left Bahrain with my mother because my father was killed out there, and so I came out to the, this country. And I can't remember how it actually went, but this child asked such an insightful question. He said, "I, I you know I he, some I think the questioner before him." Much like you've just asked, why now, why this? And I said, I don't really know. And this child said, Do you think it's because, for instance, of your father dying, that it feels like I didn't grow up wanting to emulate him because I didn't know him? I was seven and a half when he was killed. Then th- there was a, a brother in law of mine who I was really close to. My eldest sister married again. A guy who was killed in the Falklands War, unfortunately, and won the Victoria Cross. Now I was exceptionally close to him. And so the sort of desire to join the army, I think, was spurned on by him. In the course of my life, I knew him but a fraction, so there was no emulation of. We tend to you know, there's this thing you follow your father or you follow your mother, and I didn't really have that from from a young age. I felt like I was on my own. I'd go off exploring. I always felt comfortable in my own skin. I, so I don't really know it, Nathan. It's always one of those difficult questions. I'd really like to have a succinct, witty, sharp, pointed answer, and it's. I just think I said to my wife that I've had an idea. And she said, right. And I said, I'm going to build a pool. And I think she looked at me then and ever since with a bit of a, you're a raving idiot, sunshine. Um, Why am I even here with him? (laughs) And look, to all her credit, you know, you you don't do these things on your own. If it weren't for somebody immediately behind me, family, supporting me, it wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be anywhere. And then of all the people that I've, introduce this to who then come to join me again we would be nowhere without those people so the journey has become a collection of people who subscribe to that view have they got the same view as me i don't maybe maybe not quite as passionately or as, as wildly but they seem content to drag along for the moment and i'm very happy and grateful for, to all of them for that support that it now feels that it's taken on a life of its own and it grows exponentially, but how it got fed where it got started it's difficult to pin down
0: so from that moment where you went like this I love this idea you shared it with your wife is that where you started to go down that track and that's where it's led you on this sort of six year journey so far as to where the business is because I know it's been you know you know gone through its ups and downs and and I think the reason I touch on that is you've you've gotten into a very great place today, but it's we had um, somebody on a, one of our first podcasts. And, you know, they were developing their product, still developing their product after seven years. And I think there's a certain drive and, and challenge of, of someone and perseverance that you need to have to push through that kind of that timeline. My first part to that question is, how was that journey, and and what is that journey? What do you think you've learned from that journey over that time frame, and and what challenges did you experience through this this piece to get you where you are today?
1: That's a really good. Question Nathan, I think do you know what I really learned was that I didn't see it as being that bigger thing, now that i I don't intend to sound conceited or arrogant or egotistical about that, but to me i I made a statement you know we're going to build the world's biggest pool and the world's first commercial astronaut train and, and I thought that sounded a bit of hyperbole, you know oh something to get your hands, but it never. It's never, maybe there's a deficiency in me, Nathan. Some people, you know, don't feel pain necessarily or don't necessarily feel as much empathy in certain situations. And I don't see, for me, it's, I don't see scale. I don't think I see scale in the same way. I've learned scale six and a half years in (laughs) and perseverance. Whoa, I'm learning it all the time. But other people would say things to me like, oh, do you realize what you've taken on? Or that's a mad large thing and and you, you then reflect on that and then perhaps then I thought oh maybe wow is that a big thing well wow, should I have some doubts but they for some reason maybe I'm very fortuitous that's gone the perseverance I've had to learn I mean I've put up with you know in the military you you, you get, go through some pain at times and you can be very cold and you think crack is this ever going to end or this run is just brutal you know we're up and down these hills like it's gone out of fashion is this going to end but you know it it's relatively short you know in the scheme of life it's few hours a few days a few weeks a few months the difference in this that I'm on the journey and trying to observe the journey it's six and a half years and and yeah we we are very close to finally delivering on the premise would I want it to have been different perhaps has it been different no am I glad that it's not been different I think we'll come to reflect on that and think do you know as much as I might want it to have been at different points oh now 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 I need it now right now right now and then afterwards you always think "Hmm, maybe what you need is it to be right now and that's a subtle difference Uh, and so of course I'm every now and again people say and and I think yeah yeah it's coming but it will be when it's meant to be if you persevere life has a seemingly a strange way of shaping out before you and it gives you the best path in the most succinct way to deliver upon the premise that you stuck to that's my experience anyway
0: and you shared any, a really good story with me, and I, I don't know if you'd like to share it today, but I know you met one of your heroes, and and this was at a point while you were having maybe, you know, I know you've been persevering throughout all of this, but it had been a struggle. You know, there had been struggles along the way, and that person gave you maybe a bit of a, a, an uplift, and it was just a small thing, a comment, you know, uh, but it actually maybe gave you a lot of perspective and drive. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that for our listeners? Because I think it's just such an incredible moment for you, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that's Nathan, very kind and very kind of you to remember and recall that I hadn't actually been doing Blue Abyss that long—nine months—and and the one now, having in contradiction completely to what I said a second ago, I'd started to think, oh this is just hard work," you know. Not necessarily the scale, but but there's a degree of negativity. I, I tend to find that, that we British—if I count myself as being British for a second—have a, a an ability to sort of talk down something. We've, you know, we talk ourselves out of it before we talk ourselves into it. So I'd gone along to an event, very kindly been invited to this space event that was happening at the House of Commons, the House of Commons, Portcullis House, to meet an Apollo-era astronaut for me was, growing up when I did and watching those events, I was too young to really recognise any of the Apollo missions onto the moon. Even in 1972, I may have heard somebody talk about it, so it wasn't until 75 that I'd watched an Apollo rocket take off going to that event to listen to the last astronaut to walk on the moon. So the obviously significant person I think we all think of is who was the first astronaut or first couple of people on the moon, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, but to go and meet one of that era of, of people and the last person, you know, who tangibly has touched another heavenly body and walked on it. And for that moment in time, called it home just was a, I thought, look, this is really hard. It was a stupid idea, but let's not tell anybody till after I've been to the talk because they give me a free ticket. So I went and, and sat there. There wasn't many people, 20, 30 people in the room. And, and Gene Cernan was just such an affable, down-to-earth guy. But what really struck me during the talk was that he suggested that they, the collective of Apollo-era astronauts and, and, and NASA around them, felt that they were at the vanguard of humans going out into space you know that the moon was just a stepping stone by the 80s we would have been on mars cracking now 20 2021 we're only still talking about going back to the moon but at the end of his talk i thought wow that really fired me up and then somebody very kindly said would you like to meet him (laughs) hello i've come all this yes hello and, and suddenly I was seven years old in a queue, thinking, "What am I going to say? What am I going to say to, to somebody, who's been there, done that?" Right? There's no other. What mountain do you want me to climb? I've been there, done that. Um, and so I'm rehearsing, him and I'm thinking, "What am I going to say? What am I going to say?" He's just going to think you're a raving idiot. <laughs> that old theme again. And I introduced it to him. I succinct. I said, "Sir, I'm going to build this facility. You want to train us?" And he said, "So you're building." Actually, I didn't use the word facility. He said to me, "So you're building a facility." that's amazing, never give up, the way he said it to me Nate, and he shook my hand, and I just recall, I could have been seven years old, he looked six foot nine for crying out loud, big strong American guy, big strong handshake, I was a kid, but it was the way he looked at me, and when he said don't give up, and I, <laughs> that was a real wow i mean you know i've got some people i consider to be heroes the brother-in-law of mine who was killed in the falklands i think we would classify him as a hero he is a personal hero to me um helen charman she inspired me to to keep going tim peak obviously i i spoke to tim yesterday caught up on some stuff tim's an advisor to us dimitri pranario romania's only so far uh, astronaut Anna Lee Fisher, Dr. Scott Parazinski, who's one of our non-execs and a former NASA astronaut. I mean, to meet all those people. And the reason I sort of labour on the astronaut, you know, they make a tiny cadre of the population. You know, 600 people less than have ever been in space. And the fact that a number of them have deigned to talk to me, give me advice, be supportive, tell me to keep going, are there with us. That's phenomenal. But, but that Gene Sernan, and actually I have a letter from the, the the first human to ever walk in space, Alexei Leonov. He wrote me a letter saying, I'd be happy for you to call the building after me, the first facility. Oh,
0: fantastic.
1: So, you know, those are just, uh, who am I? Why would they even bother with me? You know, something something that we said, something I I conveyed gave them the opportunity. Now, maybe it meant nothing to them, but it meant everything to me, and I'm exceptionally grateful for it.
0: What an incredible – I mean, what a leader and what a person to say something like that, to be, you know, and you can just tell why someone like that would be an astronaut or to get that kind of feeling or vibe off of someone because you do view them as like people leading – I mean, leading humanity in a direction, really, and really they're the best of the best in what – in what they do, you know, as pilots, as scientists, as technicians, you know, whatever their role might be. And I I think it's just really cool to see that that came from a a conference and that could give you extra energy towards building to where, you know, to where you are today. But uh, how incredible. And and for you through this journey to have met such incredibly inspiring people. And you you mentioned something, and I, I think this was something I wanted to bring highlight too as well because you mentioned romanian's first astronaut and and one of the things you were talking about with me prior to this about one of the missions you have with a facility like this is it does also bring accessibility to countries or nations that may not have fully developed uh, space programs Um, and actually the ability of a facility like this and i I thought it was just interesting because you mentioned uh, the romanian astronaut but potentially this is also enabling other countries and, and groups to have this opportunity to Maybe potentially one day put someone into space.
1: Part of the introduction, Nathan, you very kindly did, was you you talked about you know this sea change in terms of commercial organisations in space. We talk about marine side of that much less because you know private companies have, have been exploiting our oceans and travelling across and putting humans underwater. We can do so recreationally. Space has remained preserved, typically of governments, until the last the last decade. You know both Blue Origin. And, and SpaceX have proven the reusability of a rocket. So the major cost and the major facet of right throw all this hardware up into space and then watch it burn up or, or orbit the Earth forevermore. We've delivered commercially through SpaceX astronauts to the ISS. The Americans now have their own um, ability to do that again. Um, both Blue Origin and, and Virgin Galactic have been talking for this year of taking private fee-paying passengers on suborbital experiences in Blue Origin's case it would be a rocket that goes up past the Kármán line and then um, you spend some time weightless and then descend back down in the same capsule and of course Virgin Galactic have got their own parabolic capability. I mean it's just a fascinating era to be alive and here we have this opportunity to I mean, rockets are, perhaps wouldn't have been the first thing that I would have expected to be the commercial. Satellites, you know, mobile phone companies, telecoms companies, weather satellites and stuff, th- those have been going on for a fair number of decades. But perhaps I would have expected humans to perhaps be further up the chain. But but somebody, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, for instance, and the United Launch Alliance, as private companies, saw the opportunity to put rockets into space and do so demonstrably differently, obviously with Blue Origin and, and SpaceX. And it just felt to me like an opportunity in preparing humans. If we're going to train humans to go into space, why would you do so, continue to use the methodology that governments have done? They train a select few. It's expensive. It's 18 months worth of their life. It's tens of millions of dollars, pounds, euros. Here we have an opportunity to change that why does it need to be that length of time and at that cost if a commercial company can come in and change the metrics like spacex have done and proven that instead of millions of dollars per kilo launched into space it can be tens of thousands of dollars. i mean there's an orders of magnitude change why is that availability not for space and therefore i think that we will be opening i'd like to think we'd be opening up the, the frontier of space to far wider whether you're going there to, as an explorer whether you're going there to work, whether you're going there to do some repairs or something, whether you're just going there to um, experience it. I'm booked onto a space hotel for 10 days. Wow. To be part of that story, that just for me, Nathan, it, it, I do, some people, I, th- I think it doesn't feel like the glamorous bit, the training bit. We're, we're perhaps, you know, in the old um, gold rush mentality, we're, we're selling jeans and pans and shovels. But by heck, you wouldn't have been able to pan for gold and spend much time out there if you weren't wearing any clothes and had the right equipment.
0: Yeah, or sifting in the wrong part of the river.
1: Yeah, exactly right, with the wrong equipment. (laughs) Here, we're we're doing the basic stuff. But it's the bit that addresses the curiosity. Yeah. Wow, there's a job in space to be a a bartender or a gardener or a mechanic or or a hotelier? Yes. Wow. And you can come and train here. And because of the way that democracy is happening, the few would enable the many.
0: And that's where I find we're at a, a point where the industry and, and space and technology is is starting to almost get that, like we were talking about earlier, that rejuvenation and a lot more money and resources going into it. And a lot of these commercial applications for what has primarily been, you know, government backed programs. And I think you will find, and I think that's why I think the idea that you have this whole concept is fantastic is because you will find that if we, if you just could only depend on people that have been to space to run these programs, I mean, you'd have very few people that could actually come in and potentially fly those ships or do that maintenance or do that work. You'd, you'd like you say there's only usually a pool of so many people that are astronauts, or maybe a larger pool that are training and then get selected as astronauts, but not all of them are going to be enough for this commercial revolution for the space industry. So something like this could be easily a bridge of the gap between the talent and expertise that people need for this these sort of industries and for these sort of you know commercial projects and and commercial desires you know from like spacex and and virgin orbit and things like that but also alternatively for technology and innovation which will be so crucial within this space as well especially to drive costs down but also to bring in further solutions within this frontier like you said whether it be hotels flights, you know, on more of a commercial side, or whether that we're looking at furthering exploration. And people sometimes get a bit nervous about it, but I always kind of bring it back to the East India Trading Company once upon a time for the United Kingdom. You know, that was a commercial company. Um, but that, because of a, a business like that and an enterprise like that, exploration and, and and travel around the world also expanded. There's also other reasons why HCD Tribune Company was probably not the most brilliant selection option for that. But this money and and process that comes into it and and this interest from commercial businesses certainly is opening the door for a lot of not just opportunities, careers, and and ability for us to build new technology, but also for even ventures like yourself
1: spot on again once again i was speaking to somebody earlier today and it's about the democratization of space you know governments have taken the initiative it was expensive it was very costly it was exceptionally labor intensive you know 410 people somewhere of that order worked on the apollo space program billions of dollars worth of investment the iss is a huge collaborative endeavor many nations but it's an expensive endeavor and so rightly there are fewer people who've been given the opportunity a few space tourists but by and large it remains the prevail of, of government trained astronauts here I think we're, we're entering a phase which says okay if for the very short term it's still only going to be government astronauts in the very short term the next sort of five six years perhaps then do they need to train at an, a government facility why is there not a more modern commercial facility i.e if you're training only x number of astronauts you're not training them every single day of the year in the pool. What's the pool doing for the other 998 days? You know, I'm being slightly facetious. But are the other six months of the pool not being used? What's it doing? So, a commercial company stepping in and creating absolutely up to date facilities using high tech, using theater, using technology, and using scale, why can't it use 365 days utilization? why can't it bring other facets to the business and then what you find is that when in the downtime look you would like to have an experience nathan you don't want to go to space but would you like an experience of what's it like to train like a national give me a week and i'll show you we know it's not to the same forgive the pun it's not to the same depth it's not to the same intensity but why can't i send you on a parabolic flight or round in a centrifuge or put you in a spacesuit or give you some of those physiological and psychological lessons why can't i not give you a simulated spacewalk And, you know, by doing that, you enable the the commercial facility, you enable the government facility, rather, the the utilisation of your commercial facility for government agencies to become much more costly, cost effective. You don't have to charge them as much. You're supplementing the income. Now, suddenly, those people who have been on your experience say, hey, I've heard there's an opportunity to actually go into space with Blue Origin or Spurgeon Galactic, or actually SpaceX have now said there is going to be three seats to go round the Earth. I'm going to book one of those seats. But to do so, I'll need some preparation. I went on your experience. Now I want to come and learn to be an astronaut properly.
0: But it helps b- build public support as well. You know, so like I, I share a really frustrating time for me and my father is whenever we found out that NASA got their funding cut, you know, I think there's very few policies my dad would care about in in the political scale. But he's a, a scientist by background and, and a computer architect. And you know, I think the one few things that when I grew up with was when you found out that the budget for NASA had been reduced or changed, or that budget had been pulled and put on other things. And I think some people, uh, maybe many of our listeners, probably feel similar because they have such a passion for the the work that was being done within those companies. But now you have this this ability where that funding could come elsewhere or within a facility like yours that people can come and see what funding or more direction from government you know could do you know and or maybe even have some of those experiences because I many times think that maybe unlike us there are less people that might find a passion for why that money would go to those sort of programs but maybe having the ability to see it in practice or experience one of those experiences of themselves on an individual level could help garner support and interest or even even from a learning and development point of view for for kids and school trips and stuff, and direct people to what they want to do for their futures, I think it's a fantastic you know, initiative and opportunity.
1: Yeah, Nathan, I would completely agree. I mean, providing more bang for your buck, as I think the, the Americans say. Absolutely. And, and I think commercial companies at the right point, I would like to think that we're at that inception point now, that changeover of from the old to the new, from... NASA having to do all the work and all the heavy lifting and by and large on behalf of the whole of humanity you know right we've put people on the moon we're going to do it again but why not give the American taxpayer better value and say actually you don't need to do all of this we can entice private people to come in and by doing so we can also open up opportunities for other commercial organizations to get involved and pay their fair share and now the burden on on NASA and the American taxpayer is less but the knowledge and the scope of who you're engage with grows nasa do a phenomenal education and outreach program first world class and i think if we're going to do anything like emulate them we need to do the same being able to take school children adults and and run them through a facility take them on school trips and show them not just from an astronaut perspective but about oceans developing robots you don't have to want to become a deep sea diver or or an astronaut in order to benefit from the educational ability that peeking that sort of prompting children to re- remain curious to spark that in them i think a facility like this because of the nature of watching somebody in a in a deep sea environment you know wow look at them they look like an astronaut and they're an astronaut walks across the stage all very scripted but suddenly you, all the children's excitement goes up you keep that excitement people want to learn people sheesh oh, going go to a lesson that you don't enjoy just purgatory wasn't it At times, I used to think, "Crikey, I must be... Oh man, I wasn't a very good student." Sometimes, for that reason. (laughs) But if you had a passionate, involving teacher, or you could go to a place that just could could spark your imagination, doesn't matter what you want to be. We're not about dictating that, but if I can pique your curiosity, if I can spark you, if I can infuse you, wow! And that's uh, that for me. That's what Jacques Cousteau. I met Alexandre Cousteau, one of his grandchildren. And and I reflected on the fact that he, Jacques Cousteau, had done that for me. He'd sparked that curiosity. And watching that Apollo era and, and Soyuz link up in space, those two things, oceans and space, frontiers, what more better, bigger opportunity for exploration than that? And if it sparks children to, to go swimming, to learn to swim, to go with their parents to the beach and say, watch me and I'm an explorer or or go off into the wilderness and and, you know, look after the wildlife more because they've retained that I don't want to be a diver I don't want to be national, but I want to be a mountaineer I want to to traverse this desert I want to be a photographer I want to be a better person wow it's just immense that that for me provides a passion Blue can play a part in that Nathan then what a phenomenal much 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 bigger than me just wow
0: so what's, what's next for you, John? I mean, you, we've gone through now a bit of the, the journey and, and the business. I mean, where is Blue Abyss today? And, and where are you? What's the next steps for you in your organisation?
1: So we are very close finally after six and a half years, Nathan. It feels like some full starts, but perhaps in light of, as I was saying earlier about fate and the pandemic, perhaps if we'd have opened last year, you know, who knows what, what would have happened. So things are coming nicely to the boil, as they say, with a particular region in the UK. We're hoping to make that public very soon, it's been a frustrating journey at times, but we're getting to the right place. We continue to have discussions in other countries, in the US, in the Middle East and in the Far East, uh, about other Blue Abyss centres, and we are on the cusp of finalising all of the investment. Now, the, the investment that helps us create the UK facility may be the same investors who take us forward internationally. So it's a it's a challenging few weeks, but there's a number of things happening, and hopefully that that. Final, final phase, and then begin construction within the next three to four or five months.
0: Oh, my goodness. How exciting, though, that you can see, because especially from what you've been building and going through, and, and and you're right, goodness, the pandemic certainly didn't do you any favours. But I guess on the other end, it's not exactly like, you're right, launching a facility like this and then having to close it all down, what that could have meant for the financial impact as much as it's been a, a tough and persevering journey, maybe it's happened for a reason. Because even you start a couple of years ago, you know, you would have it's still gone through a long phase of building and establishing that business and then maybe not even being able to open up or have people on site or things like that. So um, how exciting, though, that you're, these investors are now at the table and you're at the cusp of maybe even breaking ground,
1: ground in the next few months. People like Jeff Bezos and, and Richard Branson were billionaires when they started their respective space companies. And, you know, they've gone through many more years' duress and and strife to get to their places now. SpaceX, a different journey, but Elon's been through it all. Um, You know, I think he talks relatively candidly about the fact that he was nearly bankrupt. And then NASA stepped in and said, actually, we're prepared to to fund this initiative to to give this trial a go. So six years, six and a half years in the scheme of things is not a long time. You know, it's been personally difficult. And I'm exceptionally grateful, as I said to my family and to, to my fellow colleagues who've supported me and themselves through this journey. So that's the first time i ready really reflect on it. You know, after six and a half years, we might only be five months from breaking ground, maybe sooner. But things continue to accelerate. We had calls today, there's calls all this week. You know, that's becoming exciting. That in itself can provide an excitement. Sometimes when you're on the journey, you don't see how far you've come or you don't get to appreciate the view because you've got your head down. But every now and again, maybe I'll just, after you've mentioned it, I'll l- look up and, and see where we are and get more excited still.
0: Well, John, I'm really excited to see what happens over the next few months. And I'm sure everyone who's tuned in today will certainly be will be keeping a look and keeping their eye on Blue Abyss in the future. Look, I recommend anyone who's really enjoyed the chat today to check out blueabyss.uk. You can actually check out a lot of where they're at in this journey. It's a really cool website giving you an overview of what they're trying to achieve and accomplish in case you want to learn more information from John. But I just want to thank you, John, for coming on because this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. If I didn't cut it here, I think we could be talking for hours
1: on this topic thanks so much Nathan thank you I've really enjoyed it and thank you for helping re-inspire me to tell the story well, hopefully we'll be able to invite you back in the future once
0: things are up and running and, and we'll talk through all the success I'm sure you're you're soon to have over the next short months but yes thanks again and and yep for anyone willing to check it out again don't forget to check out blueabyss.uk thank you for joining us mm-hmm. Thank you to all our listeners. And join us next week as we talk with James Kerslake, CEO and founder of Tom Savano. And don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or even on our website at www.breakingthechain.online.